Buglers, it's producer Chris. I also do a podcast. It's called Richie Firth Travel Hacker and involves people thinking about doing things that they could do when they could travel and other things like that. It's a sex plane, Eunice! <laughs> oh, Bert! <laughs> and it features cameos from the likes of Andy. Uh, who knows when, if ever, aeroplanes will fly again. And Alice. No reason. Just um, met a guy recently. So just f***ing listen to it. Audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to... Sorry, I've mistyped that bit. Uh, issue 4,126 of Der Blüge. I'm all over the place today. Shame I didn't have Zutokorevd uh, on to deal with these settling errors. It is Tuesday, the 11th of August, 2020. I am Andy Zaltzman, star of neither stage nor screen, reporting to you live from the shed, where, let me tell you... It is hot. It is hot. It's hot in London, and it's hot in the shed, which catches a lot of... It is as hot as the planet Venus in here, but not as horny, admittedly. Uh, easily the sexiest planet, Venus, you'd have to say. The planet of love, which uh, science proves is uh, lethally toxic and impossible to live with. Read into that what you will, the dating industry. Uh, joining me uh, from Mumbai, India, where it cannot possibly be as hot as it is in London, uh, Anuvab Pal. Anuvab, give us a... Uh, what's the temperature check from uh, Mumbai? Well, um, it is cooler than London, uh, right. but it is wetter than London. We're in the mi- All right. <laughs> middle of the monsoons, which raises the Im- oh. I- important moral question, Andy. Would you rather be sweating or drowning? <laughs> Don't make me choose. Um, and uh, from up the road in Brixton, it's uh, it's Nish Kumar. I mean, how, how hot is Brixton compared to Streatham? We're a little oh, it's further a, north. It's a completely different ecosystem up here, Andy. <laughs> we are chilly as shit. No, yeah. it's f***ing hot. It's so f***ing hot. Uh, over the weekend, Cardi B and Megan The Stallion uh, released a song called Wet Ass Pussy. And right. a lot of people have assumed that that's to do with sexual arousal. I think that song is about... It being too fucking hot in London. <laughs> this is a city of wet ass pussies and soggy ass dicks. And let right. me tell you, those dicks are sad. S A D. Well, I didn't really understand any of that, but I'm prepared to take you. <laughs> Andy, I thought you were a huge fan of Megan the Stallion. Good luck, uh, Megan the Stallion. No, uh, no, not not uh, not not really. <laughs> Um, Andy, how are you handling, because for non-cricket fans, you're currently in the perineum that connects the anus of the previous test with the ball sack of the next test match. How are you handling being in this no-man's land of cricket? Well, I mean, it's that kind of language that explains why I'm on test match special and you're not niche. Andy, I, I don't know how closely people are following my career, but there may be other reasons why I'm not going to be invited to any cricket-based events in the near future. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so, we're- Andy, sorry, just just to, to cut back in to what Nish asked you then. Yep. How, yes. Why, why did you not refer to it as as a member of Test Match Special as the Gooch? The Gooch, right? <laughs> I think it's time to move on. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, they shall not take the name of Graham Gooch in vain. <laughs> 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 
We are in between the first uh, England-Pakistan test, which was uh, an absolute classic uh, one in dramatic circumstances. Ooh, by, what uh, a game! By uh, by England, um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, again, I mean, generally, what England like to do at the start of a of a series is let the other team win in a, a, a sort of indirect apology for some of the excesses of empire, mm-hmm. uh, which is as close as we're ever going to get to an apology. But they they pulled. They Heimlicked victory from the uh, esophagus of uh, of defeat in uh, dramatic circumstances, and uh, the, the hero was a, a chap called Chris Wokes, who's a, an England cricketer who's um, not generally particularly high profile. And I don't think I've ever heard in the years that I've been following cricket, I've never heard anyone say anything even remotely negative about Chris Wokes. I think he might be the nicest man in the history of sport, <laughs> to the extent where. There was a sense in which I think he almost looked slightly guilty for having made Pakistan lose, even though it was a personal and uh, collective triumph <laughs> for him. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm back. I'm back to cricket land uh, tomorrow for the game on on Thursday. So by the time you listen to this, Bugles, I will be, be in a more comfortable situation than sweltering in my shed. I will be enveloped once again in the comforting bosom of cricket. Um, it's the 11th of August uh, 2020, uh, which is the anniversary of just under a quarter of 1% of all the events that have ever happened in history, uh, which is lower than the average day uh, due to summer holidays and things, but still uh, often an influential day uh, of the year, not least, of course, in 1929, when Babe Ruth became the first baseballer to hit 500 home runs, not all in one day, it should be said. Uh, but uh, of events that have happened on the 11th of August, they have um, an HCQ rating, that's a historical consequence quotient, of only 53.61. That's 1.84% less influential than the average day in the year and 0.47% lower than even the average day in August, according to statistics that I've just made up. So you may be asking, what is the point in us recording a bugle on a pointless day like the 11th of August? I've absolutely no f***ing idea. Uh, as always, uh, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin this week. Best Bond! Uh, we're best Bond section here. Now, um, a recent poll uh, has showed that Sean Connery is viewed as the best James Bond of all time, the greatest of all time in modern parlance. That phrase is generally used as something that's existed for uh, um, any anything from five to 30 years, uh, slightly longer in the case of uh, Bond. But only seven people have played James Bond, which is way fewer mathematically than the people who have not played James Bond. So I think we're, you know, we're missing out on a lot of talent, assuming that Connery is the best possible Bond of all time. So to decide this once and for all, uh, on the Bugle, we're going to have a competition to find out who would have been the best Bond out of all the people in history who have not played James Bond in a film or even in a local amateur dramatic Christmas production of James Bond and the Beanstalk. Over the next 127 Bugle episodes, we will be giving you, the public, the chance to vote on your favourite Bond who never played Bond from all the people who have ever lived in a series of head-to-head knockout encounters. We've chosen for you a shortlist of 128 possible Bonds. You simply have to vote each week on which one you think would have been the better Bond and sometime late in 2022 or 2023. We will then have a final climactic showdown between the winner of our best bond out of all the non-bonds uh competition with uh, sean connery to find out the real best bond ever uh, and for our first uh, first round clash and what a mouth-watering prospect this is who would have been the better bond out of 
Marcus Aurelius or Jesus Christ? <laughs> uh, candidate one, uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Well, he was known for his short, pithy statements, very much like Bond, collated in uh, Aurelius's uh, big-selling Stoicism blockbuster meditations. He might need to joke them up a bit and make them a little saucier to fit in as Bond, but Aurelius, of course, was an all-action hero who, like Bond, was prepared to slay enemies from around the world to achieve his goals, a key Bond character trait. But would he have been a better or worse James Bond than Jesus Christ, the renowned messiah who pulled off incredible stunts like Bond, uh, was a fan of gadgets such as the donkey, the fish divider and the invisible jet ski sandal, and was also a big hit with the ladies. Uh, also, he was able to escape Bond-like from the tightest of scrapes, such as King Herod trying to kill all firstborn children, and being dead in a tomb. Classic Bond. Also spoke with a lovely, clear British accent, according to the Bible. Another key Bond attribute. So, uh, send us uh, your vote for Best Bond, Aurelius, or Christ, to the usual address, and we will have another 63 first-round clashes over the next, uh, I don't know what, 14 months or so. Also in the bin... Uh, a new number puzzle, Saz Loro, in which you have to guess which number between 1 and 10,000 fits into this gap. Good luck with that. Now, Andy, I have a pedantic contestant oh, yeah. contestant question. Uh, All right, is okay. there any advantage if your name is James Bond and you work in accounting, right. for example? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, someone presumably has done some kind of doctoral thesis piece of research into this, given that people have done doctoral thesis pieces of research into pretty much everything <laughs> in the universe now so uh, yeah i mean the, just the the nominative determinism of james bond you'd have to, obviously have to have control samples of people who were called james bond before james bond became james bond filmically if that makes sense and work out whether people called james bond have been more or less dynamic and successful yeah. since the film franchise began <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then uh, I mean anything that helps us stop thinking about reality. That's I'm just good. waiting for the the big crunch match: Idris Elba versus Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> Top story this week: world in turmoil. Well, the world is having a bit of a rocky year. I don't think you need to be. Uh, uh, even a virus fan to acknowledge that. Ice shelves are <laughs> collapsing all over the place, uh, and there is there, there are protests all around the world. There have been huge protests in Lebanon. The entire government has resigned. Protests in Belarus, Bolivia, Thailand, Siberia, Hong Kong, all over the world. A fox has stolen a hundred shoes in Berlin, as if humanity wasn't suffering enough. Um, and, uh, well, but perhaps the biggest piece of turmoil and this you are our global turmoil correspondent um of course uh as you know you you leave a trail of turmoil i love you go. yeah i love observing it i love causing it oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean what would you say is the you know the biggest bit of turmoil facing the world this week well, there's a huge amount of turmoil uh, yeah. everywhere, Andy. I mean, uh, Belarus is not faring uh, particularly well. Uh, the main challenger to Alexander Lukashenko, uh, who's a lady called Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, and I apologise for mispronouncing both of those names. Actually, I only apologise for her name, because he, without wishing to give too much away, seems like a total <laughs> <laughs> She's refusing to accept that uh, the result of the election, uh, because he claims he won uh, 80% of the vote. 80%. That's a big slice of the vote. And, and you might be thinking, well, maybe, maybe he did win that much. Uh, but 
And you might be thinking, oh, maybe he did win by that much. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, 30 people have been arrested in the capital. A witness say they saw police officers with truncheons beating protesters. Uh, and they uh, and a Polish-based broadcaster has said that the internet is mostly unavailable. And nothing <laughs> says, I have won fair and square, like beating up protesters and turning off the internet. <laughs> that, nothing screams, this was a fair fight like that. That's basically like saying, of course I'm not a dictator. All I've done is lock up my opponents and festoon the town square with pictures of myself. Jesus, <laughs> this is political correctness gone mad. Can a man not even randomly arrest people he doesn't like the look of and have them killed whilst at the same time insisting on his picture being in all post offices without being called a dictator? This is cancel culture gone mad. <laughs> I mean, another, another slight clue to his style of leadership is, um, well, just the very fact that uh, that Tikhonovskaya was his main rival. She's now fled to Lithuania uh, for the safety of uh, of her children. Um, but she'd only taken over as Lukashenko's main challenger after her husband was sent to jail uh, and two other contenders have also been barred. So the mere fact that she ended up running against him was uh, only really because he... Well, I mean, let's look at his leadership style. He wears his leadership style unashamedly bushily under his nose. I mean, there is no way a moustache like that can be an accident, you would say, at least (laughs) post-1938-ish. Particularly in uh, in something like Belarus. As someone who lives in a chaotic democracy... Uh, I I would just like to read out today's Times of India headline as it relates to Belarus. It says, uh, uh, Miss Svetlana says, I consider myself the winner of this election, after which she promptly fled the country. (laughs) 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 And, you know, this wasn't Um, a surprise headline in India. It happens often. (laughs) (laughs) Another signal as to Lukashenko's... um, uh, style of leadership is the fact that uh, his secret service is still called the KGB. <laughs> now, I mean, that is that is a leader who isn't fussed about using a historically tainted brand if it if it suits him. A uh, few more details on the man. He's been in power for 26 years. Coincidentally, the exact same amount of time that's passed since 1994, when, by coincidence, the 1994 World Cup began, ironically, actually three days before Lukashenko took the reins of the electro-donkey of executive power in Belarus in the aftermath of the U, the S, the S and the R of USSR flying off in different directions. Also, that was three days after OJ Simpson's low-speed car chaser bang, which does make you wonder if Lukashenko knows something and has used that power to maintain his grip on the handlebars of power on the Kawasaki 350 that is high Belarusian office, which Lukashenko, of course, entered on the very day that Brazil beat Russia 2-0 with goals from Romario and Captain Rai, who, of course, would end the tournament sitting on the bench, watching Dunga having taken over the captain's arm mad, lifting the famous old trophy. No wonder it took the world a while to notice that uh, Lukashenko was not entirely a, a goodie in the grand scheme of things. Um, oh, I mean, if you're looking for any further indication that this man is not a good man... Uh, here's a, a little chap that he's praised publicly in the past, a little gentleman by the name of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> he uh, he said that the uh, history of Germany is a copy of the history of Belarus. Germany was raised from ruins thanks to firm authority, and not everything connected with that well-known figure Hitler was bad. German order evolved over the centuries and attained its peak under Hitler. And you know what they say about Hitler, Andy? Not everything about him was... No, wait, that's not true. You know what they say about Hitler? Everything about him was bad. Absolutely everything about him was bad. Uh, Lukashenko has been described as Europe's last dictator. And can we please at least add on a for now? I mean, let's be... (laughs) 
Let's be realistic about this. Uh, or at least add on Europe's last dictator and then add the words who actually has the decency to lay his dictatorial cards firmly <laughs> on the table or who actually holds office rather than wielding power behind the scenes or who hasn't gone into football management or sports administration instead. <laughs> uh, his salary, apparently uh, his salary as, uh, as president of uh, Belarus is uh, 25,000 euros a year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess so. I, I imagine there are some absolutely big fucking perks attached to that. <laughs> well, he is allowed expenses of up to 125 million US dollars a month, no receipts needed. But still, 25 grand a year. Shows he does it for the love. He does it for the love. It is possible that the central auditor of the Belarusian Republic is also him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's um, so there've been big protests against uh, his his uh, his government, and in the aftermath of these uh, elections, police have violently attra- uh, attacked demonstrators. And Lukashenko has claimed that the protests were being directed from other countries and has singled out as suspects Poland, the Czech Republic, and wait for this, Britain. Now, yes, this is, ver- this is very very flattering that the Belarusian bastardo thinks that we have that kind of club in our bag. But seriously, we cannot organise a f***ing phone line in this country. Do you th- really think we can coordinate thousands of protesters thousands of miles away? We can't get basic medical equipment to frontline health workers in our own f***ing hospitals. There's no way we are trying to destabilise the Belarusian government. We don't have those skills. <laughs> There might be protests in Belarus. There might be protests in Lebanon. There might be protests everywhere. But we all know the real country that is experiencing genuine crisis is the United Kingdom. Yeah, testify. Andy, Anavab, mm-hmm. you would have no idea what this feels like. Right. But our country is being invaded by foreigners. Yeah. You, and in India, you mm. just have no idea what that's no like. Clue. Okay. No clue. <laughs> never happened. It's never happened. We are... We are under one of the most dangerous invasions of all time, by which I mean a small boat with eight defenceless <laughs> refugees arrived in Kent. <laughs> and if that does not spell out the scale of this crisis, and it is a crisis, then I don't know what will. It is absolutely astonishing what has happened here. <laughs> Nigel Farage, uh, the disgraced radio DJ and permanent. <laughs> Uh, has uh, taken up a new hobby which is travelling down to the beaches of Kent and making uh, videos on his iPhone. Uh, uh, He posted one online last Thursday which he called a shocking invasion of the Kent coast which was uh, about eight people getting off a dinghy and walking on a beach. Now, eight people is less than the number of people who in total have walked on the moon. And I don't know if either of you have noticed, but we're not exactly in charge up there. We are quite far away from declaring the moon the 51st state of North, North, North Dakota. (laughs) Now, Nish, uh, I know nothing about invasions, uh, but just a hypothetical question. Um, Say say the British were to invade some country. Uh, Say India, for example. (laughs) Uh, Not that... Well, Well... Okay, let's set this. This, uh, if we're going for science fiction, fine. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Completely hypothetical situation. Say they were to land, and it is said that a few British people um, hypothetically invaded India. Uh, now, for an invasion, 
you would need, I would imagine, at least 200 people, 500 people, maybe a thousand people. <laughs> um, is it possible to invade? I don't know much about your island. You know, this, this English language I've just picked up on Google. So this is totally hypothetical. But, you know, I'm assuming we're India to be invaded say in the year 1756, say at a place called the Battle of Plassey, all hypothetical, you would need, it, <laughs> you would need at least a, a hundred thousand troops to invade a country. Now, you've got 60 million people. Would eight do? I mean, as the British Parliament... Well, yeah, look, I, I, look there's, a, there's a hint of cynicism coming from you here, Annabelle. <laughs> if you've got a hundred thousand people and they're all in very smart, bright red uniforms, actually quite easy to spot. Yes. Uh, whereas you know only eight people in a in a rubber dinghy actually that's uh, that's 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 a, a far greater threat uh, to people you know this uh, I mean it, it does slightly make you think actually when you think of the history of invasions yes. that it's just another one of those things that's lost their edge a bit that what we've got is a slow trickle of people turning up in unarmed inflatable vessels then asking politely for permission to stay it's not to I mean, the Vikings wouldn't get out of bed for that kind of stuff, would they? <laughs> I just wonder, because it is... Uh, earlier this week, the, uh, there was a letter sent to the Home Secretary by 23 Tory MPs and two peers who said that ministers must do whatever it takes to address the attempts from migrants to enter the UK using small boats. Uh, and as a side note, those 25 people, it's not so much a shit list as it is a complete f***ing cunt list. And they... <laughs> They in, they, it, the letter specifically referred to invading migrants. And it starts to make me think, is this part of a deep-seated fear in the British psyche, based on what we have done abroad, that we simply cannot conceive of turning up to a country without invading it? Like, why else would you bother making the trip? So whenever we see people uh, arriving here, for reasons, you know, as diffuse as maybe, oh, I don't know, fleeing persecution or desperately trying to make a better life for themselves, instead of thinking, well, we should extend uh, a humanitarian handout to these people uh we think you know what they must be here to get our jewels and put them in their hats because that's what we f***ing did for 200 years we, d we didn't see this in 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 context though because you know it's, it's a it's a, it's a ma massive issue in british politics the whole issue of uh, immigration of, of, of asylum in 2019 there were 36,000 applications for asylum yes. in britain now that is way 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 more those 36,000. That is way more than the 165,000 there were in Germany. It's way more than the 151,000 there were in France. The 117,000 in Spain. And it is even, even more than the 77,000 asylum applications there were in Greece. And in fact, if you put all of those together and do the maths wrong mm -hmm. and don't count anyone with legs, arms or a head in those other countries applying for asylum, we actually took 100% of all the asylum seekers to all those countries <laughs> combined. So this is an in you know, invasion you of can mock it all you like. It's an invasion of home office paperwork. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has described the crossings as very bad and stupid and dangerous and criminal, which to be fair to him is just him quoting directly from his own Tinder bio. <laughs> and human rights groups have gone on to describe Johnson's remarks as inaccurate and inflammatory. But in Johnson's defence, that's what he does. The man is inaccurate and inflammatory. If you asked him directions to the local shop, he would manage to tell you to turn left, right, left, right and left again 
causing a confusing circle. And while he was saying it, he would somehow manage to use the N-word. Describing <laughs> Boris Johnson as inaccurate and inflammatory is as pointless, pointless at this point as describing me as being brown and shrill. <laughs> it's simply what we're known for. It's an inexorable part of our personal brand. <laughs> now, Nish, Andy, as political observers, uh, I have to say in this part of the world... Uh, Nigel Farage is not very well known. So if, if you were to describe Nigel Farage Nish as a contemporary political analyst, how would you describe him for an Indian audience, say? Well, it, put it this way. Nigel Farage, uh, for the last sort of 25 to 30 years, is basically like a child uh, who has walked into the middle of their parents' dinner party naked and is frantically tugging on his penis for attention. <laughs> now, in that situation, I, I'm not a parent, but in that situation, I think the best thing to do, don't give him the attention he craves, and carry on eating. What the British media has done for the last 25 years is they've set up a 24-hour rolling news coverage of this metaphorical child's cock and balls. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I learned two lessons here. One about Nigel Farage, two about British dinner parties. <laughs> and three, by the sounds of things, don't invite me to babysit your kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, uh, he, he, you know, he, he agitated for the Brexit referendum and uh, he got the Brexit referendum. Um, and he, 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 as the head of the UK Independence Party and subsequently the Brexit Party, he's been a figure from the uh, far right of Britain uh, who's constantly exerted pressure on the Conservative Party, the right-wing party, and who have constantly sort of caved in to his demands, largely, because they've been trying to sort of avoid stop him from heading them off on the right of the party and costing them votes. And at this point, his latest shit fest is a very convenient way for the government to use this crisis, a word I'm using absolutely, totally inaccurately, as a way of <laughs> distracting from its myriad failures, be it its Brexit plan, which is now being castigated by the very ministers who voted for it, or its coronavirus strategy, which now, and I believe this is the official position, hey, at least we aren't America. And that's pretty much all we've got. <laughs> all we've got going for us at this point once again uh, the conservative party is using innocent uh, and defenseless refugees helpless people who we should be offering a hand to as political footballs but they still somehow even do it poorly and the thing about political football is that like real football we have been quite bad at it for the last 20 years. <laughs> and what we now need to do is have a heavy investment in grassroots political football. We need to start looking at the continent, at some of the uh, more innovative political football coaches that have been operating there for the last 60 to 70 years. And we need to start looking at how we can rear a new generation of more technically adept, fast and skillful political football players. Well, so, you just, so not just lumping it up to the big number nine again? <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, it's, it's what made this country great it's been a bad week to be british uh and uh, uh that's something i could have said at any point for the last uh five or arguably uh, 250 years <laughs> Um, because uh, YouGov, uh, uh, in conjunction with this YouGov, who uh, are a sort of polling agency, uh, did a survey and uh, around uh, migrants and refugees, and uh, 22% of the people surveyed said that they had not much sympathy, and 27% said they had no sympathy at all uh, for these people. And uh, you've got to say at this point, uh, these basically are now, what it suggests is, these are the people who watched Bambi and thought, 
Bambi's mum deserved everything that she got. <laughs> and I imagine, and I imagine she was f***ing delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, since we're talking about megalomaniac uh, political figures and, uh, as you mentioned, political artworks earlier, uh, Nish, uh, uh, Donald Trump um, has denied asking uh, about the feasibility of adding his own face to Mount Rushmore, uh, the uh, famous American monument with uh, four of the uh, greatest presidents of uh, US history. Now, he may well have denied it, and it is the kind of thing that could well be, as he claimed, fake news. However... <laughs> Even if he denies actually having asked it, he did not and could not deny having thought it. Because, and, <laughs> but there's no way that he has not not only thought about uh, about that, but probably experienced some form of sexual urge whilst thinking about it, and you know whether it would be possible <laughs> to copulate with a giant stone statue of himself. Um, he tweeted, "This is fake news." Um, I never suggested it, although based on all of the many things I've accomplished during my first three and a half years, perhaps more than any other presidency, it sounds like a good idea to me. Now, <laughs> I mean, I think the Bugle has laid its trumpet cards firmly on the table over the last four years, and uh, you know, we, we haven't necessarily been an unequivocal fan of everything that he's done. Uh, but to me, adding Trump to Rushmore would be like adding Hannibal Lecter to The Last Supper. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, if you've not heard of it, The Last Supper, smash it, pioneering celeb foodie documentary painting by Lenny Peterson, or as he was known at the time, Leonardo Di Piero da Vinci. It's like adding a, a coiling turd to Rodan's The Thinker, or maybe adapting Antonio Canova's famous statue, The Three Graces, by adding Donald Trump to it, complete with an alarmingly priapic cock. <laughs> Listen, Andy, this may be the first impulse of his that I've respected, because who amongst <laughs> us has not looked at an object of great social and cultural significance and not thought, I'd like to draw cock on that? <laughs> <laughs> also, I feel the Trump Corporation is the sort of company that, for a million dollars, will allow anyone's face to be carved on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> I think more realistic for him is to try to join James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, Warren G. Harding and Franklin Pierce on Mount St. Shithead, which uh, tells all the worst presidents in American history. I am hugely in favour of of some kind of balance. I mean, Mount Rushmore, listen, even even the presidents that are on there, sure, there's an Abe Lincoln, but there's a couple of tricky customers uh, on there vis-a-vis massive slave owners i'm looking at you thomas jefferson and uh, and you george washington and there's also you know teddy roosevelt was a man not without contention but i do genuinely think oh also i only found this out recently mount rushmore is built on ground that had been promised to native americans in perpetuity so it's like the whole thing is a bit of a nightmare but i do think the only thing that could balance it out is by building some sort of monument to the most dog shit presidents. Maybe they could even sculpt it out of canine feces just to really sell the point of it. Just a stinking mound of dog shit featuring some of America's most useless presidents. And that, and that one Trump might get on. In fact, I'd fast track him to the top of that list. In the other 
Uh, turmoil news. As I mentioned earlier on, Berlin has been rocked to its foundations by uh, a fox which has stolen a hundred shoes. Um, <laughs> a, a, a stash of of the footwear was found um, by someone who'd had a, a shoe stolen by the fox. Most of them were described by police as slightly nibbled. The fox, who shall remain nameless, as foxes so often do, apparently favoured a plastic summer shoe. I'm not sure what you can read into that, but it does maybe suggest it wasn't a fetish thing. But it does make you wonder, what are foxes up to? I mean, it is possible they've completed their research into what we keep in our bins and are now starting to analyse our footwear. <laughs> and at this rate, they will know everything about human civilization and our points of vulnerability within 300 years, at which point they'll be ready to pounce and take over the world. But I've got some news for them. Hurry up, you frizzy tail felons. Human civilization will have killed itself long before then. <laughs> Conflicting news reports are coming out, Nish, Andy, that this particular fox was a fan of Imelda Marcos, wife of uh, the dictator of Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. And she had an extensive shoe collection, and I think inspired by her, this fox is building... His own shoe <laughs> collection. Which leads me to ask, Nish, Andy, what the f*** is going on in Europe? <laughs> there are large... <laughs> this is exactly why we Brexited. Exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is exactly what we voted to leave. Marauding gangs of shoe-thieving foxes. This is exactly what the Leave campaign was talking about. But they sort of ended up saying it with something about Romanians. But the <laughs> Romanians were actually metaphors for foxes. And this, this was the genius of the Leave campaign. They saw it coming. And uh, instead of shoes, they said jobs. But other than that, they were absolutely bang on. <laughs> Indian COVID news now, and um, the government's announced um, uh, plans to test a million people a day, um, which um, sounds like a lot, Anivab, but that would still take four years to test the entire country. <laughs> so massive is the Indian uh, Indian population. Are you uh, are you excited by this this pledge from your beloved government? Well, you know, uh, there's there's some research done on this, Andy. The United Kingdom tests 192 people for every hundred thousand people. Um, Right now, indeed. Yes, but that, those numbers are very good, Adivab. You have to remember, those are world-beating numbers. And they're world-beating because our government told us they were world-beating. Exactly, exactly. Always good to rely on one source of information, as we've learned in India. Uh, Pakistan, it's eight for 100,000 people. India right now, 36 for 100,000 people is what we're testing. Prime Minister Modi, our liberal, wonderful leader, his ambition is to increase this number to a million tests each day. Um, and one of the suggestions being made is instead of putting a tube up and down your nose and sending it to a lab, it's just to go up to an Indian person, ask them, do you have it? And, <laughs> and rely on a yes and no answer. Um, it's worked for a number of other things in India. So why not for a dangerous disease? <laughs> well, one of the ways, you know, in the early uh, days of this crisis, we avoided being put on these lists was we didn't test. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if you don't test, you don't have it. So that's that's a good way in which we've avoided any conflict in an Indian household. If you don't bring it up for long enough, one or the other person will die. <laughs> yeah. Just ask my uncle Suresh, who's not with us anymore. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't know why mom, my mum doesn't love him and he never will. 
<laughs> Britain news now, and uh, children will be going back to school uh, next month uh, in England if Boris Johnson, our God-given Prime Minister, has his way, because there is a moral duty to do so. There is a moral duty to get children back in the schools. Those are the words of Boris Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson started lecturing this country on moral <laughs> d- Boris Boris Johnson le- told told Britain what its what its moral moral duty what sat- satire is not only dead it has been cremated <laughs> and scattered to the winds <laughs> Boris Johnson told us what moral duty even in the weirdest of possible weird worlds that our version of the universe has found itself in to hear Boris Johnson telling us what our moral duty? That is a new tranche of implausible. Um, I mean, Nish, Nish, I know you, Boris Johnson, for you very much, your spiritual guru. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you went orienteering with Boris Johnson's moral compass, <laughs> yes. you, you would end up a f- of a long way away from where you were trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd uh, you'd start in Blackpool and end up in Shanghai. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> But I, I don't know why you're... I can't believe that you're reacting in this way, Andy. Of course Boris Johnson needs school to restart. His house must be absolutely full of children. <laughs> you're talking about a man whose Wikipedia page, as we record this, continues to say children, and the number is at least six. <laughs> Boris Johnson's house is basically a secondary school at the moment. Of course he f***ing needs the schools to open. The guy just needs a bit of peace so he can think about how to fudge COVID numbers. <laughs> it's He's probably absolutely overwhelmed. Also, I think that, um, you know, Boris uh, Johnson is largely seen as, you know, uh, the, his skill is seen as largely sort of uh, reading the British public's mood and uh, anticipating it. Uh, but he has said, uh, as well as the, uh, as Andy says, a moral duty to get children back to schools, he said that he uh, will shut pubs to keep schools open. And I'm afraid Boris Johnson, uh, his Titanic may have finally hit its iceberg. <laughs> because if he thinks that the British public is going to tolerate pubs being closed to open schools, <laughs> he has fundamentally misunderstood the mood of teachers, pupils, and every single person in this country. <laughs> Um, in another uh, school issue, um, there's been a, a big rumpus about how exam grades are being uh, being given out. Um, that uh, the, the Scottish government had uh, announced that uh, a lot of pupils are having their their assessed grades downgraded. So rather than going with what the teachers had said, they were basing it on uh, algorithms. Is happening across England as well. The, the Scots have now gone back on that. Their education secretary. Um, John Swinney uh, said that uh, the results that had been downgraded will be reversed. Uh, he said, we now accept that the concern over grade inflation is outweighed by concern that young people from working class backgrounds may lose faith in the education system and conclude that the system is against them. That conclusion has not been reached yet in England, uh, where the government <laughs> education minister, uh, Petrola Carvel limp said, uh, England as a society is founded on uh, inequality. It's what made us great as a nation, both in its global pursuit and in the clarity it brings to selecting people for political office. These whinging teenagers need to accept that. If they'd wanted fairness in education, they should have come out of someone else's womb and gone to someone else's school. <laughs> uh, so it's rather clearer in England uh, than it is north of uh, north of Hadrian's Wall. The, the problem is they were basing um, 
because the exams had to be cancelled due to COVID and uh, not just due to COVID, but also due to having a monstrously incompetent government um, attempting to <laughs> deal with the COVID crisis. Um, uh, they, they were basing children's grades on what their teachers had assessed. This resulted in grades being higher because apparently teachers are human with a heart. Um, uh, and, uh, <laughs> King hippies. <laughs> so they were instead going to they they forced teachers to rank all their pupils and would then give them grades based on how pupils from the same schools had done in previous years. So if you happen to be at a school which had had a coach loads of which in previous years, then your entire <laughs> life prospects are uh, ruined. However, if you'd gone to a school with, for example, uh, lots of high-achieving children from wealthy families, uh, then you're fine. Now, really, in many ways, this was merely formalising the British education system uh, as it is. Uh, various options have been suggested for how to, to give grades uh, instead, trusting people's assessment of themselves, um, which really gives school pupils the same rights that governments have uh, on lying about their own achievements and fiddling the figures to massage uh, political results. Um, alternatively, um, they could just follow the political example and give higher grades to people whose financial backers stump up with the most money. That's basically how it works. Uh, or since pubs have proved more important than schools, just get kids to go on quiz machines in pubs and award <laughs> grades based on how they do on quiz machines. That might be the fairest way, as well as boosting uh, boosting uh, the trade for the struggling uh, hospitality industry. Um, the government's inequalities are Sir Daryl Pitchling, whose remit is to ensure that um, a suitably British level of inequality remains entrenched in society, announced that any pupils whose parents become unemployed when the government's furlough scheme ends will be retrospectively downgraded. Uh, Sir Derald uh, said, it seems unfair that these kids will benefit where the children of the long-term unemployed do not. That's all we want in education, fairness and equality of opportunity. Similarly, he continued, if any people can prove that they have a close biological link to a hereditary peer, a current cabinet minister or a major donor to the Conservative Party, they'll be bumped up a couple of grades. Or if they're prepared to start a YouTube channel posting videos about how great Boris Johnson and Brexit are, they can get an automatic A. It's basically just rolling out the system we use for the House of Lords, so it's all part of our British values <laughs> trademark and all that. Team GB. Team GB. I'd just like to add that I, I find that this last system you described... Uh, very fair, you know, I've had a lot of experience with that in the third world. Um, just a small suggestion to make it even more equal. Uh, purchasing the question paper for a very high price <laughs> uh, works very well in Indian state board elections, uh, examinations, uh, loads of medical and legal examinations. You can, you can purchase the paper. Sometimes if you know the right people, you don't even have to purchase the paper. Sometimes if you don't know the right people and you have a gun uh, and you know where the teacher lives, <laughs> that is a good solution. So, you know, academia, there are lots of options that you guys haven't explored in Britain. <laughs> well that brings us to the end of this week's uh, this week's bugle um and if you have anything to uh, plug to our <laughs> listeners uh, well i am carrying on uh, through the lockdown uh, just to let you know i think india doesn't plan to come out of the lockdown so <laughs> this is just going to be a way of life uh, so <laughs> we're not going to have any gigs anymore we're just going to be at home and then just get used to it so uh my, my plug is, uh, please, uh, you know, wish me good luck for my new lockdown life. <laughs> uh, Nish? Uh, I'm hosting a show uh, on uh, the app Quibi, uh, which is called Hello America. Um, and the premise of the show is uh, that it's a British comedian talking about the American news, which I believe has never <laughs> been done before. <laughs> and I'm excited to be a pioneer of, uh, of this particular form. <laughs> 
Um, uh, thank you for listening, uh, Buglers. If you want to hear more of me, I'll be uh, spouting numbers into the radio again for the next two weeks. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with NATO Green and Tiff Stevenson, and we will play you out this week with some lies about our premium-level voluntary subscribers. To join them, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the Donate button. And also, you can view our spectacular range of new merch. Two things available. Oh, is there new uh, merch? There are, two, there are two things available. There are three work. things. <laughs> three now, is it? The, jump, the jumpers are on full sound. Oh, yeah, I've taken them off pre-sale, Andy. Oh, right, okay. Things. So Christmas jumpers. Christmas jumpers, T-shirts and socks. And two different sizes of T-shirt. Or two different designs. Probably more. Actually, I mean, let's, how many different sizes are there of T-shirt? I mean, I'm really underselling this. About I? six. I mean, Six. Wow. I mean, let's There's two different let's, colours let's, of socks. Oh, There's shitloads yeah. of stuff. I absolutely love these. Oh, I love these socks. Yeah. These are yeah. absolutely great. Awesome yeah. socks. This Absolute is someone's really whole wardrobe. Really it's a t-shirt, a jumper, yeah. and socks. You're sorted. I mean, you need yeah, never yeah. need any other form of clothing ever again. <laughs> yeah, uh, and of course, if you're a true bugler, you will philosophically refuse to wear trousers or pants. <laughs> and that's and that that's the real creed of the bugle: is uh, tops covered, feet covered. Let those genitals breathe. <laughs> and there can be no more appropriate way to end the show than that. <laughs> Bye. Ian Young feels sorry for ancient Greek myth star Sisyphus. Sure, the guy was an entitled prick and a deceitful little shitbag. He would fit right into the political landscape today. But for Zeus to punish him by making him continually roll a rock almost all the way up a hill over and over again for all eternity seems a real waste of divine punishment. Why not get the bastard to paint fences or road lines forever, or continually dredge irrigation channels, or continually plant trees in the Amazon? Give something back to society. What use to anyone is the shoving a rock up a hill nonsense. It is punishment for punishment's sake, rails Ian, and it does not help rehabilitate Sisyphus or benefit society as a whole. Grant Craig thinks that, if anything, the excessive punishment meted out to Sisyphus glamorised him and his crimes. Sisyphus was punished for cheating death, notes Grant, and now, thanks to him, everyone wants to have medical treatment to live as long as possible, at vast economic cost to governments worldwide. Whilst I admire the Greek god's more flexible use of non-custodial judicial sentencing, continues Grant, something today's prison-obsessed legislators could well learn from, I believe the harshness of those sentences to have been counterproductive in the long term. James Daly agrees, and wonders where Sisyphus is now. Even though Zeus has long since quit his role as CEO of the Olympian Gods franchise, says James, presumably Sisyphus has no idea about that and is still rolling that stupid boulder up that stupid hill. Maybe he's come to an acceptance of it and finds joy in simple things like the changing of the seasons, the rhythm of the days and the sound of passers-by going ooh ah every time he gets near the top and the boulder rolls back down. He'd probably miss it if he ever had his all-eternity sentence commuted to 4,000 years, time which he has already served, concludes James. Emily Ditto worries about Sisyphus's mental state should he ever be released from his unending boulder-shoving torment. He'll have no support network, says Emily. His family and buddies are not only all long since dead, but probably never existed in the first place, and no one really needs boulders rolled up hills anymore either, so it's not like he's picked up any useful skills while serving his sentence. The Greek economy isn't in great shape, adds Emily, and the jobs market is tough enough for people in their 50s, let alone ex-myth stars who are several thousand years in the tooth. 
Steve in Oregon often wonders how many boulders Sisyphus has got through over the course of his sentence. Obviously, notes Steve in Oregon, which of course has its fair share of both boulders and mountains, it depends on the rock the boulders are made from, and the size and steepness of the hill it is being rolled up and then rolling down. Then, continues Steve, you also have to factor in what type of terrain the boulder encounters on the way, and what, if anything, is bringing it to a halt at the bottom. These could all affect the rate of erosion of the boulders, and indeed, whether or not they crack into smaller rocks. Any ideas, anyone? Rebecca Leo pipes up and notes that over the significant portion of eternity that the former king of Corinth has already served, weather erosion could also have been a factor, especially if the boulders are made of a more porous or softer rock. Also, says Rebecca, let's assume that Zeus doesn't let the boulder erode below a certain size, otherwise what's the point? So I reckon old Sisyphus has probably got through loads of boulders, like maybe 28 boulders, possibly even up to 35 boulders. Beeble Beeblestein chips in to wonder whether this whole discussion has been pointless. The chances are, Beeble blasts, that he's still on the original boulder, which was almost certainly a magic one. Remember, these Olympian gods could do anything. They could turn themselves into swans to get their ends away and stuff like that. I reckon they could come up with a non-eroding punishment boulder, don't you? And Linda Coletta Fenger has absolutely no sympathy with Sisyphus. If he's still shoving that stupid rock up and down that stupid hill, he's got only himself to blame. It is a clear contravention of his human rights, and any half-decent lawyer would not only get him released from that sentence, but win him a fat compensation package too. Besides, adds Linda, Sisyphus was a total bastard who tried to kill his brother, who also, by the way, was an utter shithead. Seriously, you've got to ask questions of the parents. I don't care how mythical they were. Here endeth this week's lies. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.